Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I have Kathleen with me. Kathleen, uh, where are you from and what is it that you do? I am so excited to be here. I am from Annapolis, Maryland, and I'm vice president of marketing at a company called Clean.io, which is based in Baltimore, and we are a digital engagement security platform. Want me to tell you what that means? <laughs> yeah, for the uh, for the listeners, I just pulled a strange face. What, what do those words mean? <laughs> no, I get that question a lot. So really what that means is we help brands protect their user experience and their revenue by allowing them greater control over the third-party code that executes on their website. So what kind of code would people be executing on the website? Like what, what is it that they would be running that might introduce risk? Oh gosh, there are so many different ways that this manifests. And this is the interesting thing. So, you know, I'm a marketer and I, I sell to a lot of marketers. Um, and we always talk in marketing about how our websites are our owned asset, right? Like we always say, when you're on social media, you don't own that, the platforms do. But with your website, you own it. And so you control it. But that's really an illusion. <laughs> um, and, you know, yes, we control the copy we put on the page and the images we choose, you know, and, and the, the platform we build it on. But the reality of the modern web is that not only do we allow a ton of third-party code in, in the form of plugins and apps and things that make our website run better, but we put, you know, script on the page. We put tracking code from Google Analytics and all kinds of other pixels and things like that. And then, so those, that's the code that we deliberately put on there and there's a ton of it. So if, you, if you're familiar with the plugin, the Chrome plugin built with, you know, you can just pull up any website and look at built with and you'll see all the third party code on the site and there's a ton. So we let a lot of it in ourselves, but then what I think most marketers and, and many folks outside of marketing too don't understand is that there's a lot of other third party code that executes on our site that, that we haven't let in. And one great example of that is browser extensions I mentioned built with, you know, any browser extension that a user installs in their internet browser has an elevated set of permissions to execute on a website. And that's really how they function. That's why Built With is able to scrape your site and know what, what it's built with. Um, and so, you know, we don't allow that code in, but it's still executing on our site and it can still have an impact on the user experience and ultimately on your revenue. So that's the problem that we're out to solve. So what kind of risks are there then? We're, we're talking about all of this code that could do bad things, but what are the potential bad things? Oh, well, there are many, many different bad things. I mean, it starts with uh, browser extensions that are actually infected with malware. Um, you know, that's probably at the most basic level uh, of cybersecurity risk. You know, many of these extensions, we don't know who created them. There are some, they're more well-known ones. Like I mentioned, Google Analytics are built with that are very well-known and I would say trusted. But there, you know, if you just go to the Chrome web store and search for a, a great example would be like color pickers. I use this all the time as a marketer if I want to go onto a website and use like an eyedropper tool and, and see what is the hex code of the color that this person is using on their site. And, you know, I've probably used three or four of those in my years and at least one of them was infected. Uh, and fortunately Chrome has some, you know, protections built in where it, it will flag that, but it doesn't always catch everything. And so that would be the most basic level of risk where it could actually infect the, the plugins could infect your machine as a user 
Um, but they could also do things to the site. Other examples, and this is more where I think what we do comes in. So we, we have two sides to our product. One protects large online publishers from what's called malvertising, which is malicious ads. So this goes back to the third-party code that we allow into our sites. Um, you know, so we work with companies like the Boston Globe. And if you're a, a reader, you go to the Boston Globe website, you want to consume their content, their whole business model is based on advertising. And in today's world, most of the advertisements that are delivered to a lot of the websites on the internet are delivered programmatically. So effectively, the, you know, in this case, it would be the Boston Globe is working with what are called ex exchanges, supply side platforms that work with, you know, demand side platforms. And effectively, it's, it's all the different ways people buy ads. And then these ads are fed in automatically to the site. So through a script and the Boston Globe, in this case, is not working directly with the advertiser. So they have no way to vet who is the advertiser? What is their intention? They just have to trust that the exchanges are delivering them clean ads. And you know, I, most of us have experienced malicious ads. It's like when you click on an ad and it redirects you someplace you didn't want to go, or a sweepstakes window pops up in your computer and you can't close it. There's no way to shut it, right? Or um, you know, you're taken to a page where they're trying to enroll you in a Bitcoin scam. There are so many different ways it manifests, but it's a terrible user experience. And in this case, for publishers, their their revenue model is ads. And so if they have to turn off those ads, you know, that costs them dollars too. And so on the publishing side, that would be an example of something that we protect against. And then we also have another product called CleanCart, which deals with the other side of it, the client side injections, which is those browser extensions I talked about. And so in that case, we help e-commerce brands prevent extensions like Honey and Capital One Shopping from auto-injecting coupon codes at checkout. So in that case, it's not a malicious uh, extension, but it would be what's called untrusted because as a as a brand, e-commerce brand, I may not have invited them into my site, but nonetheless, they're popping up at checkout and, and eroding my profit margins and also creating kind of a disruptive user experience with, you know, pop-ups and script injections and things like that. And so those are some examples of how we're currently addressing it, but I think our mission is really to, to be able to solve for all third-party code and to have brands feel comfortable that when they build their website, they truly do own the experience there. I think that's one of the things as well for those on the um, consumer side, maybe not have not considered the fact that the adverts that they're seeing on these websites are not put there by the companies themselves. I mean, of course, they've made the advertising space, but the specific ad that you're seeing as you say, it's, it's not being selected by that company. I think uh, a lot of people maybe don't realize that. And then that leads to them feeling a certain level of trust in that advert, maybe. And if that if that is impacted, if it turns out to be um, advertising or even just like a scam, um, that's going to impact their views of the brand, right? Oh, you're, you're spot on. And in fact, you know, and publishers go to great lengths to try to prevent that. They have what are called category blocks where they can say, you know, like, don't feed me any ads that have pornography or anything with supplements or, you know, whatever category they feel isn't right for their audience. But category blocks aren't perfect. Um, and so there's a whole industry that has popped up around ad quality as well, because at, at the end of the day for publishers, you know, users, subscribers, readers, whatever you want to call them, that's their business. That's what they're monetizing through the ads. And so if somebody comes to the site and has a bad experience, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're not going to come to that site again, which is really bad because you're, you're losing your monetization base, or they will come back, but they'll put on an ad blocker. 
which is also terrible because the way publishers make money is through ads. And so either way, it's, it's, it really has a big impact on both user experience and revenue for that company. And so it's important for them to have control over that. How do you balance the fact that um, many consumers are, are using ad blockers because their experience of advertising previously has been so negative? You know, we, we could give examples of websites that you visit where the, the whole site is, you know, it's 60% adverts and it, the, the user experience is, is low. But if you put an ad blocker on, it makes it much better. How do you balance that um, user feeling coming into it, you know, bringing an ad blocker with them because they think um, that they just don't want to see ads at all? Yeah, it's um there's a lot of attention and time and energy being put into this in the publishing world. And the more savvy publishers have gotten really good at trying to craft an ad experience that isn't disruptive. And at the same time, they've invested in technology that allows them to basically detect when somebody's coming with an ad blocker and and put up uh, an interstitial like a pop-up that says essentially, "Hey, this is how we make money." you know, if they either give them the choice, would please turn your ad blocker off, or it could be, you know, you're not going to be able to see the content unless you do turn the ad blocker off. Who suffers really are the smaller sites that aren't savvy enough to understand how to control that ad experience. And so they wind up with out of control advertisements on their site and pop-ups that are disruptive and things like that. Like I see it all the time when I go to recipe sites, right? I'm just trying to see the recipe and every 10 seconds a pop-up comes up that blocks my view of it. It drives me crazy. And especially when I'm on mobile Um, and those smaller sites, you know, that, that could be that person's livelihood. And they, they maybe don't have the experience to understand the best way to craft that ad experience and, or they don't have the money to invest in the technology to basically ask people to turn that ad blocker off. And so it's a real problem. How much are, um, how much is this this area um, targeted by by hackers then? Because I guess we could talk a little bit about, you know, adverts that are just scams, but are, are hackers specifically targeting advertising platforms? Yes. In fact, the United States government, I think it was a couple months ago, the Department of Defense put out an advisory to the entire, basically the workforce of the U.S. government. Uh, I don't know if it was required or suggested, but it was a strong, let's call it a strong suggestion that every government issued computer be issued with ad blockers installed because they had found evidence that there were, call it bad actors who were using malvertising to try and infect state election boards. So it's absolutely an issue. You know, it of course comes in varying degrees because the vast majority of people who engage in malvertising are really just very sophisticated performance marketers who are using you know, their skills with advertising to drive people to click and go to places where they can monetize them. So that's those sweepstakes scams and things like that. So most of it is is, uh, a crime for money, but there are definitely instances that are much more severe. And of course, that could have a huge impact on the other side of things. If we have these platforms that are funded through their advertising, and then suddenly they see a huge drop off because the advice to to users, be it U.S. government or just more broadly users in general, is saying you should should block ads. That's gonna that's gonna disrupt those businesses' ability to to function, right? Yeah, absolutely. And especially, you know, when it comes to publishers, it comes at a time when they're they're already struggling with so many other things like Google deprecating third-party cookies. And I could go on about that, but that gets really nerdy in marketing. So I, I won't do that to you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those are just, so those are just some examples. But, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity and marketers, you know, there's your website, there's 
I was fascinated because I, I was a VP of marketing in a number of cybersecurity companies. And it was eye-opening for me because I had come in and and as a marketer, you're given you're given a lot of budget for IT spend within the company. And in fact, I've seen some data that is suggests that today's marketing leaders have bigger IT budgets than IT leaders do in the company. And yet we have zero training in cybersecurity. And so it's like, we're handing the car keys over to the, you know, to a 12 year old and saying, go drive. And, and it's frightening because we, and we also tend to control the website, which is today, you know, it's, it's the public face of the company and it, it's very vulnerable. You know, we see hacks all the time of companies that have much greater resources than most of us do as brands, and they're still vulnerable. So it's a big concern and it's not just understanding how to lock down your website. It's understanding all the social engineering that happens and how that, you know, especially as a marketer, how we can introduce vulnerabilities to the companies that we work for. So it's something I'm super passionate about because I feel like we've been, we've been let out into the world with, with a lot of, um, we, we control a lot of power, but we also, that makes us very vulnerable on behalf of our companies. I think that's um, something that we commonly see as well with um, how companies defend against these risks, because very often we'll see companies doing security awareness training and they'll be teaching all of their staff, use secure passwords, use multi-factor authentication. But very rarely do I see organizations implement role-specific security awareness training. So talking to advertisers or talking to marketing teams about their specific risks, because we're mentioning one here, right? It's the, the, the risk of malvertising. But I wonder how many of the listeners will think think for their organizations, does their security awareness training include those kinds of risks for those kinds of teams? Um, I certainly don't see it. No, in fact, somebody recently asked me what my prediction was that for something that would change in the world of marketing in the next few years. And I really do predict that there will emerge a, a class of service provider that specializes in what I call marketing security, or I like to shorten it to MARSEC, right? It's, it is a very specialized area because it is, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's beyond password managers. It's beyond single sign-on. You know, I'll give you an example as a marketing leader of at a prior company. Um, I had my CEO and my head of sales who were working a booth at a trade show down in Georgia. And as marketing leaders do, you know, I got a, they sent me a picture of themselves sitting at the booth and I put it on LinkedIn and I tagged their, them with their names. And I said, you know, here's our CEO and our head of sales work in the booth at this event, you know, in Atlanta. And within an hour, one of our newest employees who happened to be a salesperson got an email, quote unquote, from the CEO asking him to go out and buy $500 in gift cards and send, send them to him because he was in Atlanta working the booth at a conference. Well, how did that happen? That happened because I basically gave the person all the information they needed to pull off a very effective heist. They knew the name of the CEO and the head of sales. They knew where they were, what conference they were at. They knew that they were there at that moment in time. All they had to do was go to our LinkedIn page and see who's the most recent employee to join this company. And I'm going to target that person. And it worked, you know, and, and it, 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 that happens a lot. And again, that was for me, very eye-opening as a marketing leader. And it doesn't mean you, you shouldn't post those things, but like, that's a great example of where if I had had more training, I might've sent, you know, a Slack out internally and said, Hey, our team is down at this conference in Atlanta. I'm going to be promoting it, you know, just be aware. And Oh, by the way, the CEO 
will never ask you to go and buy gift cards for him. <laughs> and if he does, that's that's a scam, right? Yeah, I think one of the problems with these kinds of social engineering schemes is the fact that they can be so varied, right? So you give one example there of like the the gift card scams, but there's so many variations on that that could be done. Yeah. And I, th I think it's about, it is about awareness raising and the more examples like that, that you can bring into the conversation, the more, I think the more people become trained to look for signs of nefarious intent. But I also think as a company, you know, you need to think about having kind of blanket statements that you make or blanket policies. Like I said, the CEO will never ask you to buy a gift card. And if he does, it will be either in person or over the phone and you'll hear his voice, right? It's never going to be by email. Or if you do get an email from the CEO, that seems suspicious. Don't just hit reply because then you're replying to the hacker. <laughs> um, you know, send him a separate email or a text or what have you. Like training people around things like that and setting expectations before the problem happens, I think, can be really helpful. Um, but but it goes back to as a marketer, being aware that when you when you push this information out into the world, you are giving people all the ammunition they need to be able to come after you with very customized approaches. And so I think th that heightened awareness is important and everyone's going to solve it differently. And again, it doesn't mean you need to stop doing marketing, but you do have to, you have to understand the effect you can have on the company you work for. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of times when we look at things like security awareness training, if it doesn't, if it doesn't have that bespoke or customized approach, there can be things that are missed. So I mentioned earlier, you know, use secure passwords and use multi-factor authentication. But something that you mentioned earlier was, of course, the, the marketing team are going to do things like installing plugins on the website, or they're going to install plugins on their systems to, to enable them to perform their jobs better, right? Something like Google Analytics could be a good go-to um, example. Yeah. But of course, the problem with, with plugins for many web platforms and things like that is the fact that the they can come from anywhere, right? So it could be a, a trusted brand or a, a well-known product, or it could just be, you know, some um, school project or somebody who's come up with a good idea and they've put it together, but they're maybe not backed by a security team and things like that. So how do we how do we actually approach that risk then? Because of course, telling uh, marketers just not to install plugins <laughs> isn't going to work, right? Doesn't work. No, right. That's a great question, and um, and I'll I'll start with a story, and then I'll kind of answer your your question. So, uh, one of the companies I worked at a little over a year ago was a cybersecurity company, and they did a lot of work with threat hunting. And we had a very sophisticated team of threat hunters that came out of the National Security Agency, and and so we knew that we would were going to be a target for the bad guys because we were going after them, right? And so we. We really needed to have everything on lockdown. And I'll never forget, I came in and the website was not great. And one of the first things I said is we need to redo the website and we really need to put it on a platform that makes it easier for us as a marketing team to make updates. And so I, at the time, was proposing um, WordPress and it was just funny because I, I had to go to our threat hunting team to sort of get their, their clearance on it. They wanted to, to put everything on Blogger and I was like, we can't do that. We just, I know it's more secure, but we can't do for so many reasons. And it was funny because they said, well, give us what word, you know, what WordPress host you want to put it on. And, and we'll basically like see how vulnerable it is. And we had somebody on our team at the time who literally could hack into anything in the world. And it was just funny. He was like, well, 
it took me 30 minutes instead of five, <laughs> you know? And so <laughs> it was really, it was funny, but, but I just raised that story to say that the reality is that in most cases, there is no perfect solution. Like we're not going to be able to come up with, for example, a hosting platform or CMS for our website. That's 100% secure. If we were, then we wouldn't hear about, you know, all these companies getting breached. And so what we have to do is a determine what our acceptable level of risk is, and then B determine how we're going to set ourselves up so that if, if we are breached, we're able to recover as quickly as possible. And so like the conversation I had at that time was, okay, we want to be on WordPress because it makes our lives so much easier from a marketing standpoint, and we can develop a more, more beautiful website. But if we're going to do this, and at that time, you know, I think the recommendation was we're going to host it on WP Engine, which is a host that's purpose-built for WordPress. And they had an enterprise option at the time where we could be on a dedicated server, which is a lot more secure. And they also have, it's like constant backups of your website. And if, you're, if your website is hacked, you can literally press a button and restore it. So it, it's that kind of quick response and they had phone, you know, phone support as opposed to like submitting a ticket and waiting 24 hours. Like those are the kinds of things I think you need to think about as a marketer with security. It's, you know, you're never going to get a perfect solution. So assume for a minute that you will get breached and think through if that happens, what needs to be in place for us to recover as quickly as possible. It's getting those two teams to to talk to each other as well, the, the marketing team and the security team, because I definitely think there's some people who work in security, certainly those who are maybe newer to security, that think that you should be aiming for a completely secure platform and you should do absolutely everything to make sure that a system has no vulnerabilities, has no risk. But of course, we, we talk about managing risk, because if you if you push things to the point of you know, being as secure as absolutely possible. You lose all of your agility, you're spending far more of your budget on security. The 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 systems become unmanageable effectively. That's right. And I think one of the challenges that's baked into this is that in very big companies, you you probably have an internal security team, or if you happen to work for a cybersecurity company like I did, but most companies don't have somebody internally who owns security. Like if you're lucky, you have a managed you know, security services provider who's external, who you're working closely with. Some companies don't even have that. And so that's, that's where I think it gets really tricky is if you don't have somebody who is at your beck and call to help you with this, that can be tough. And you, you might want to look into getting someone on an external basis. If you do, you know, like you said, especially if you're working with an MSSP, um, who's external, it might be your IT contact or your chief operating officer who's the primary point of contact. It's likely not your head of marketing. <laughs> and so bridging that divide and, and opening up lines of communication there, I, I agree, it's really important, but it's not something that normally happens. And that's that's really what I would say needs to change. Yeah, the number of times I've heard from um, security professionals where they'll, they'll phrase something, you know, that this team, maybe not necessarily the marketing team, but oh, this team asked me to do something that in their opinion, their professional opinion is stupid. And they say, I just told them no. And it's like, <laughs> okay, great. And now, now what are they going to do? Yeah. Because they still need to, to, to get that benefit. They still need to do something. And, and that's how we, we hear so many stories of, of people going a little bit rogue and, and maybe doing it anywhere uh, w- without telling the security team next time, or maybe they'll try uh, something else. And, and you, you hear these stories of, of employees trying to bypass security and work their way around it. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's those employees' 
false. If the security team gives you just a blank no, with no other opportunities for, for conversation or no other alternatives, it's like, you still got to do your job, right? Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was working in cyber, um, one of the things I used to say all the time is that every employee is their own chief security officer because they will 100%, it's like water. You know, when you when a river goes down a, a mountain, it looks for the, the easiest path, right? And people are like that too. If you If you create security policies and procedures and you get security tools that are not easy to use, people are going to take it upon themselves to choose their own solution or to find a way around it. And that's where you know, and everybody in cybersecurity knows people are the biggest point of vulnerability. So, you know, usability, user-friendliness, training, all of that is so, so essential. Um, but I wanted to circle back for a second to a point you made earlier about communicating with your security person. Mm -hmm. And one reason that's so important is that, you know, it's not just about how you set up your tech stack, because there's that point in time where you're redoing the website or you're putting in plugins. And of course, in the best of all worlds, we're we're doing some kind of due diligence on those things when we put them in. But it's like anything. It's like buying a house. You know, you don't just buy the house and then you're done, right? Like there's constant maintenance, there's constant issues that pop up. And the same thing with cybersecurity. And so a great example of that is I talked about WordPress earlier. And, you know, generally WordPress is used by the vast majority of the world's websites and, and there are ways to do it well, but a lot of WordPress sites are built on themes. And there are, this goes back to our conversation earlier about trusted resources, right? Like there are definitely trusted marketplaces for themes. One of the biggest ones is Envato. Uh, that's where a lot of people get their WordPress themes from. I've done it. I trust them. Uh, and, and I think it was a year ago, um, there was a major vulnerability. There was a, a particular WordPress theme that is sold through Envato, which is a trusted marketplace, that it turns out was created by hackers as a way for them to have a backdoor into millions of websites. There was a, a, a bulletin put out by the U.S. government about it at the time. And I remember thinking that theme is on millions and millions of websites around the world. And, mo and those people probably felt that they could trust it because it came from a trusted marketplace. But if you're not continuously paying attention to you know, these bulletins that come out, to the new advisories that come out, you could be sitting there with a website for years built on a theme that's known to be nefarious because that, you know, that discovery didn't happen until months or years after you built your site. And so that's why it's so important to stay on top of that stuff. And as a marketer, you're not going to be able to do it. And so that's why your IT person or your security person, whoever it is that's paying attention to cybersecurity should be one of your best friends because they're going to be the one that protects you from yourself going forward. Yeah, I think something to, to add to that as well is the fact that um, when it comes to you know, themes and plugins and things like that, it isn't necessarily just the stuff that's written to be malicious, but you've also got to consider the things that are just poorly written. So poor code quality that could lead these things to be vulnerable without necessarily having that, that malicious intent behind them. Because if then a, a threat group, if, if um, some hackers find that vulnerability, they could still leverage it in the same way. That's exactly right. I mean, that's... That's what, you know, zero days are all about. And they're hard to find in, in large things like Microsoft Outlook or Exchange or whatever. But, but in smaller plugins and apps, it's very easy to find those kinds of exploits and take advantage of them. Yeah, that's something that I've, I've spoken to a lot of companies about in terms of the, the relative risk between 
the software that's written by major organizations and the the software that's bespoke to them because it's like well how many of your how many you know security professionals have looked at this when it comes to microsoft products they've got you know hundreds and hundreds of people who are paying attention to that looking for these vulnerabilities but if you've got something bespoke to you or if you've got something that's you know um certainly less popular then you'll have just had less eyes on it less less people reviewing it right and it's that build versus buy debate mm. and we talk about this all the time because in many cases you you certainly could build your own version of a solution. We, I had somebody say this to me about one of the products we sell. They were like, well, why wouldn't I just build this myself? <laughs> and my answer was, well, you could, but do you have a team of 20 engineers like we do who isn't just building it, but who's constantly improving it and making sure that over time, the code integrity is there and that it, it the interoperability with all the other things you use functions appropriately. Like that's multiple people's full-time jobs on an ongoing basis. So it's with any software, it like goes back to my house analogy. It's not just set it, build it and then forget it and walk away. You have to be constantly maintaining it. Yeah. And I, I think there's, there's a lot of parallels with that in other areas of security as well. So not only just like building products, but things like one of the benefits of, you know, working as a professional ethical hacker is the number of companies that we work with. We see all different kinds of uh, technologies implemented in all different kinds of ways. And we get an awful lot of experience. And very often, you know, we'll um, look at one system, find a vulnerability in that system, and then we're able to look elsewhere and find that same issue elsewhere. Yeah. So the more exposure that you get, just the more experience and the, the more kind of um, background knowledge you have. That's a great point. We don't know what we don't know in our own companies, but there are other people who do. So what else should people be be worried about then? We've talked about um, WordPress themes. We've talked about plugins for um, these common platforms. And we've talked about uh, malvertising through, through advertising platforms. Is, is that it? Is that the whole risk neatly summarized or is there anything we've missed? Oh my gosh, I wish I could say that was it. And there's probably things I'm not even aware of. I, you know, I certainly, I certainly am not the world's foremost expert in this. Um, but I, I, I'm a marketer who's had the good fortune, at least, of working in cyber, and so I feel like my eyes were opened. Um, you know, I think there, there's definitely different categories. There's, there's the actual like technology risk, and we have to look at our whole tech stack. So we, we talked about the website. We talked about plugins. But, you know, very often the tech stack involves so many different things, you know, like just in my company right now, we have, you know, I didn't set it up. Obviously we have our email, but then there are things that I use. There are my marketing automation platform that has a plugin to email. You know, there are different, all different types of software that we're using to purchase ads, perhaps to accept ads, as we talked about earlier. Um, there's our social media platforms and, you know, the, the category, as I said, of social engineering and, and the information we give out to the world and how that is used to target our company. So it's pretty, the attack surface is pretty vast. And I think there are many different ways that bad actors can take advantage of marketing as a backdoor into a company, or maybe not even the backdoor. It's some cases it's the front door, <laughs> You know, um, and so I would say the best place to start is by really auditing and understanding all the different technology you're using and just trying to understand how it could make you vulnerable, whether that is through literally a cybersecurity breach where somebody is able to get in through the code 
or whether that is through the kind of information that you're giving out via that tech stack and how that makes you vulnerable either to social engineering or to leakage of PII. Um, doing that kind of an audit is a great place to start. And then also just thinking through educating your team on awareness around, and it's funny, it's funny to say this because really what I'm suggesting is if your company hasn't done cybersecurity awareness training, you as the marketer should really suggest it because I know I have a vested interest in this when I do the social posts. Like I don't want my team to fall victim to social engineering. And, and if they haven't had awareness training, there's a much higher likelihood that they will. So taking on some ownership for that as a marketer, I think it's, it's a weird suggestion, but I do think it's a direction we're going to increasingly see marketers have to go. I think that is uh, a great idea as well, because we we mentioned one of the risks earlier is, you know, the, the IT team or the security team being asked to deliver security awareness training. So they're thinking through, you know, what risks should we talk about? What vulnerabilities should we raise to these teams? And that's how you get them focusing on things like um, passwords, multi-factor authentication, insecure Wi-Fi, those things that are commonly part of security awareness training. But if the, if the teams themselves, be it the marketing team or another team, were to raise the risk, like, hey, I work in marketing and I use these plugins or I use these automation tools. What kind of risks does that introduce for us? By feeding that information back to the security team, they, they can give you more specific guidance, like role-based guidance to, to help you with those risks. Because I'm sure they know about the, the good things to be doing and how to use these, these systems correctly, or at least they can, they can look into it. Yeah. But I think, you know, if it's never raised and it's never addressed. Yeah. And, and it's, it even goes as far as, I mean, you just made me think of one more risk, which I think is pretty common, which is working with contractors, you know, and, and some of the most famous hacks in the world, the big target breach, right. That was through an air conditioning uh, vendor that target worked with who had access to their computer systems. You know, as a marketer, I work with a lot of outsourced experts, either people who are doing our pay-per-click advertising or outsourced marketing agencies, um, website developers, and I'm regularly giving these people access to things, whether it's backend access to my website or to my marketing automation platform or to my social media accounts. Like I'm giving the keys to the kingdom to people that don't work for my company. And so that's the other thing that I'm embarrassed I didn't mention it until now, but like thinking through who you're giving access to and what the implications of that are. And then also having access controls going forward because Every time a person leaves the company, every time a contractor stops working on a project, like you need to have a process in place for, for removing that person's access, or at least rolling it back to a level that, that is, you know, as only as much as they really need. That's something I don't think a lot of us think through. And it's funny because I used to own a marketing agency. And so I've been on the other side of this where I had a lot of clients for whom we did social media and I sold that company in 2017. And when, when I did, we went through this process of like sending everybody their, their passwords and making sure they all had admin access to different things. To this day, I still have companies that have failed to take me out of, you know, as a, in an admin role from their social media, from, you know, accessing their, their domain registration and hosting. Like, it's crazy what, what I still have access to. And I try to like audit and go through and remove it when I find it, but you know, that's just good cyber hygiene. Yeah, I think one of the problems is just when you've got a lot of systems to manage, then you sometimes forget about these things. So they might go through, you know, through uh, the WordPress system and remove your account from there and think, okay, that's good. We've, we've cleaned you out kind of thing. 
but then forget about the domain registrar and those kinds of things. So if you don't have effectively like a list, you're going to miss something. Yeah, you are. It's interesting as well, talking through some of these risks, because of course, each of these different um, elements have different potentials from the threat actor's point of view, from the hacker's point of view, right? Uh, I mentioned this because you you mentioned um, social media being like the front door or the back door, or like, how do we word this? And I think uh, a lot of um, companies maybe focus on cybersecurity risks that are common or, or well-known, impactful things. So, so looking at things like ransomware and breaches of internal networks and those kinds of things. But just something as simple as a, a, a social media account being hacked could be hugely impactful to an organization from a brand point of view. And it doesn't necessarily even touch your own technology, right? It's just a platform that you're using, but it's your brand that's on that platform. That's absolutely right. And I mean, I, I experienced this in my personal life because I, I have my own podcast and I host it on a podcast hosting platform, but it's syndicated out to a lot of different places, one of which is Apple. And, and to get on Apple, you have to log in through your Apple ID to set up your podcast. Well, my Apple ID got stolen. The The audience is going to go crazy if you don't mention the name of the podcast, by the way. Oh, well, but then everyone's going to know I don't have access to it anymore. Well, I, I do. I, so, so it's the inbound success podcast. It's about marketing uh-huh. and it's terrible. Like, so I can still publish my podcast and I still do, you know, because I, I own the podcast hosting that syndicates it out, but I can't get into my, to, to Apple to control the actual Apple podcast connect where it hosts my podcast on Apple. It's, it's, it's so upsetting to me. And I think, you know, it was interesting when I first started working in cyber as a head of marketing, one of the questions that that the head of the threat intelligence team asked me was, have you ever been compromised? And at the time I said, no, because I hadn't been. And, and he was like, you know, it's interesting because we do find that the most successful people in cybersecurity are the ones who've really experienced it for themselves because they know how really emotional it is. And, and so I've experienced it two ways. One is, is that is the theft of my old Apple ID, which was pretty significant in many ways. But then also when I owned my company, our website did get hacked. And one morning I came in to find a picture of a, of a young uh, South Southeast Asian woman. Like her picture was on my front page of my website, along with a note, like, Hey, I've got your site. Now, fortunately I was using, I think at the time it was WP engine and I was able to go in and press a button and restore my site. But like, you know, experiencing that yourself definitely changes your outlook on it. And so hopefully people won't have to experience it for themselves in order to appreciate the importance of it. But when it does finally happen, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like having your house broken into, it's a real feeling of vulnerability. Yeah. And it, it is crazy how much um, you kind of grow as a professional by going through that kind of thing. I was, um, doing this is a few years ago now 2017 i was doing um, incident response with a with a company and it was their first breach as a security team that never had anything so so impactful before it was a ransomware attack and one of the questions as we were going through the process they asked me is like why are you so calm you know we're all freaking out here our systems are being hacked and it's like it's not the first time i've been through this yeah by going through that incident response process either as i did as a professional helping um third party companies or because your own systems have been hit um it really helps you you know keep things in perspective work to uh, a priority and sometimes it can even just be be dumb things so for that company one of the one of the things i pointed out is like you're going to want to buy some food 
because we're probably going to be in this office for a long time <laughs> dealing with this. Oh gosh. Yeah. It's so true. You know, having gone through it once, you can be much more calm, cool and collected when it happens again, but hopefully it doesn't happen again. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the risk is no doubt lower because, you know, you can see what, what happens. You get a broader view of security. You start taking it seriously. How yeah. many people say that their company didn't really take cybersecurity seriously until it got breached and then suddenly the budget is much higher? It's so true. And even just personally, I mean, after my Apple ID was compromised, I mean, I have another Apple ID, but I'm not using Apple Pay anymore just because I, I thought, gosh, last thing I need is for my debit card to be in there, <laughs> you know, and it's it's that awareness that that changed everything for me. And that's it. I guess that's one of the major takeaways from this conversation, isn't it? It's like uh, awareness is a bigger thing than than people maybe realize. And, you know, there's no harm in if you're working in a team, be it the marketing team or something like that, is like going to the security team and saying, look, I need some help with this. You know, this is we're doing this as part of our job or this is an aspect of our role. But, you know, can can someone come and check that we're doing it well, we're doing it securely? Yeah, it's awareness. It's asking for help. And it's also realizing that you could have the best tech in the world. But at the end of the day, the biggest point of vulnerability is you. It's people. And so I think all of us, just because we don't work in cybersecurity, it doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to do our part to defend the company and the brand. Yeah. And I guess for anyone who's listening in and has never thought about it before, we've pointed out during this conversation that, you know, the marketing team can be targeted because they have access to all of these things. If I want to defer a company's website, getting into the marketing team is going to be a great way to do that. If I want to access, you know, a lot of these company resources, the marketing team might have that access that that I'm trying to get as a hacker. Yep. Hopefully not after this. Hopefully all the marketers are going to listen and (laughs) get their security awareness training and not be as big of a vulnerability as we have been in the past. <laughs> Hopefully everybody's freaking out now and they're going to go away and they're going to learn about what are these plugins. Like, exactly. How do, we, how do we make sure these are good and, and how do we make sure that our accounts are locked down and things so that hopply that's good. Um, Kathleen, thank you for, for joining today. If people have listened to some of the topics that we've been talking about and they want to know more and they want to know more about the, the work that you do, um, how can they find out more about what you do? Uh, so I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I'm head of marketing for a company called clean.io, which very fortunately, our company name is the same as our URL. So you can just go to clean.io and you'll learn more about uh, how we help companies protect their user experience and their revenue through controlling the third-party code on their website. And you'll find me there too. If you want to connect with me, the best way is on LinkedIn. I, I connect with everyone and I'm happy to chat with you if you have any questions. Awesome. Kathleen, thank you very much again for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a ton of fun.